You're listening to Life, Death and Sport, the podcast that reveals sports rarely told stories of heartbreak, healing and hope, shining a light on the real and raw issues that are so often kept in the dark. Hosted by Robbie Cornthwaite. Usually when I talk to people about their story, there's quite often a moment that haunts them or it's harder for them to move past. That moment for me was a phone call that I had to make to my dad to tell him that my daughter was going to pass away. For today's guest, Tim Conrad, his moment was a call from his wife while he was playing interstate. He was unable to help her in the very moment that she needed him the most. Tim has spent the last 11 years in the NBL playing for the Illawarra Hawks, and he's just one of three players to play more than 300 games for the club. I want to thank Tim for sharing his story with us. It's a very personal and painful journey. Well, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Tim Conrad to Life, Death and Sport. Tim, how are you this evening? I'm good, mate. Thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. No, it's, um, it's obviously a pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, very brave of you to come on and tell your story. It's a, it is a remarkable story. I know when you, we spoke about it uh, going back a week or so ago now, you know, I, I honestly had tears in my eyes. So um, let's hope I can get through this in, in one piece. But, um, yeah. yeah, it is a very, you very... You both, mate. Yeah, it's a very powerful story, and, and we will get to that. We'll start off on a little bit of a lighter note, I suppose, um, yeah. with the basketball. Obviously, you're part of the Illawarra Hawks set up and have been for the last 10 or 11 seasons. It wasn't maybe mm-hmm. the greatest season Illawarra's had, um, if we look back sort of six, eight, 12 months um, now. Yeah. Win- wins and losses and, and ladder position, maybe not. But if you look at the, the hype around the team um, with Lamelo Ball coming to the squad, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. that might... Mu- Obviously, a huge positive. But what was it like to play with um, Lamelo and have him, you know, train with him every day? Yeah, look, uh, you know, Lamelo was a, from all my interactions with him. He's, a, he's just a good kid. Like you forget, he's eighteen years old. You know what I mean? And it's um, he's he was seventeen when he got to us. You know what I mean? So it was uh, obviously a massive adjustment period for him. Um, you know, at, in our first few practices, he tra- sort of figured out that, hang on, this is organised basketball now because he hadn't really played any real organised basketball. I mean, you've got to give the kid a break. He's really only played like, almost four or five pickup games in high school basketball. So it's um, it's just seeing him come in. And, and um, the one of the things that does stand out in my mind, there's two things that really, really impressed me. Um, one was his passing ability. He would uh, throw some passes that I just you just don't see other people throw. You know what I mean? He just his confidence passing the basketball. And I was a beneficiary of that for a lot of it. So um, we, me and him, and I know him and Booney as well, they, they started to develop a really good chemistry. And so did we on, uh, you know, some, some situations out on the court. But the second thing, and I think the most like important thing in my mind, is, that it is an, for an 18-year-old kid, he, he never got flustered. Not once did he lose his temper, and not once did he, you know, throw a basketball, and not once did he have an outburst. It was all just, he was under control the whole time. And with people coming at him every now and then and calling him out, he just he just rolled with the punches and just <laughs> never once got flustered. Uh, you mentioned there, obviously, his composure and how calm he was. He was just 17 when he arrived uh, to the side. How, how did you treat him? Did you treat him any different than you would maybe a, a regular 17-year-old kid from Australia? Look, I, I tried not to. You know what I mean? I I, um, I understood the hype, and uh, well, actually, I didn't at the time, but I definitely do now. But um, he, um, I coming in, I just said I, di- I didn't want to be like a, an attention seeker. You know what I mean? I didn't want to just truly try and get around him just because you know to get that little look at what that kind of fame was like. I said from the start, I was just going to treat him like a teammate. 
treat him like a, another 18 year old kid coming in just give him pieces of advice where i can i'm not really like a vocal out on the court type of person i'm more of a have a one-on-one -on -one chat with you or just pull you aside sort of person so i um i just you know when he was coming in i just said look this is just uh, one of my other teammates coming in i'm going to try and help him out as much as i can and um but obviously not take that too far to the point where i'm you know pretty much bothering you know i try and keep a good balance so and you know he's uh he took everything on board like as you can see in his growth throughout the season he only got better you know it took him a short period of time half a season and he got 10 times better and understood what we were doing so much better and if he had had the second half of the season i i i really think he he would have gone even further Unfortunately, yeah, he was injured and wasn't able to complete the uh, the second half of the season. From the little that you did see of him, I mean, what are your expectations of him and how far do you think he can go in the game in America or, or elsewhere? Yeah, that's a big question right now, isn't it? You know, he's going to be drafted, no doubt, because he's got uh, physical ability, uh, his quickness and his, you know, his first step, um, his handling the basketball, his um, his ability to pass is, is, is uh, almost... You know, you don't see that too often. Um, and his composure and, and his work ethic are all there, you know. If I, you know, for my two cents, obviously he needs to develop physically. Um, he needs to put on a little bit more size if he's going to handle an 82-game season and, um, you know, taking bumps from some of the bigger guys out there. Um, yeah, apart from that, you know, it's just I think he just needs to be in the environment and continue to learn because while he was here, he was like a computer just downloading information each training, each game. He just kept downloading and downloading to a point that he pretty much got what we were trying to do and understood that he was the ball was going to go through him a lot and um, he was the one that was going to try and make things happen for us. So um, he was getting other guys involved and I think, you know, like I said, if he had that second half of the season, I think he you know, definitely would have made a push. Probably definitely would have won more games, I think. Yeah. But, um, uh, but, you know, it's just a pity that we didn't get to see that. Well, super talented kid, and let's uh, wish him all the best. And hopefully you've played some very, very small part in uh, what is to be a very, very good season. He's a player that is sort of, well, he's, he is at the start of his career. I don't want to upset you so early in, on in this interview, but you're on the other side of your career. Things are slowly um, coming to an end. You've hopefully still got a couple of years left in you. But you were born in Brisbane, and, and I, I suppose in a sense your basketball career maybe started when you, were, uh, you went to college in America. Uh, you attended Nova, yeah. Nova Southeastern in Florida. W what's that yeah, experience right. like? I mean, I had a sister that went to a college in America, so I've got a little bit of insight there. But for the average Australian who only gets to see maybe college games on TV or, or college parties in movies, what's it like uh, spending all that time over there in the US? Oh, it's exactly like the movies, mate. <laughs> no doubt. Red, red exactly Solo Cups, parties, to all that sort of stuff. Exactly right, it, it does. You can get, and obviously you can get a little too caught up in that. And being close, as close to Miami as we were, and on the beach, there's definitely some guys that got a little too caught up in that side of things. But you know, uh, luckily we had my first year. We had a good group of guys, and we had a good senior group as well. So um, you know, it was uh, it was good for me coming into that situation. And um, being in a Division Two school uh, just meant that I got to play a lot. I know a lot of guys have gone Division One because there's a lot of hype around Division One, but. Um, you know, a lot of those guys have got lost in the shuffle because they don't get to play four years. They have to wait and bide their time. You know, there's there's way more Division Two players in the NBL than in, like, and Australian representatives for that matter. I mean, you look at the likes of David Barlow, Mark Worthington, 
you know, Ben Madgen. Um, I'm missing a lot of big ones here myself. Reese Martin previously. Uh, man, there's there's a ton of them. Yeah. I'm missing out some big ones, but yeah, Division Two is just was a good fit for me because I got to play and I got to start four years, which was great. What's the um, what's the schedule like? I mean, people watching college basketball on on TV, it's it looks like full time professional sport. Is the commitment uh, just that? Is it like training before school and after school? And um, you know, what's a what's an average day look like? Yeah, like um, we built a new arena um, in my second year, so an average day would be like we'd go to classes. We you try and schedule classes around practice. Our coach said to block out from. Um, we had to block out from one thirty to five thirty was mm-hmm. our time, so we fit weights and practice in, in amongst that. And you know, if the class was that you had to do a, let's say I had to do a six a.m. class or a seven a.m. class, I'd do that, and then maybe another class after that, and then we go to, um, you know, we go to practice, do our weights, you know, video, all that sort of stuff in that chunk of time. And then some of us, like once a week, you might have a night class that goes for four hours because the, all the subjects are set up differently. So yeah. um, you just you just pretty much got to know when we're training. And then a, uh, a supervisor that, that you get assigned to, um, she does the schedule for you. You just say what subjects you need to do and they try and work everything into your schedule. I mean, you've got a, a bit of a successful business now on the side. Were you smart enough to use that time to get yourself a, a degree? And what did you study? Yeah, I, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in um, Sports and Recreational Management. So that was, uh, that was you know, it was good. Uh, got the got the degree and um, haven't really used that degree too much. I mean, I do run a business, but, mm. um, you know, a lot of the principles from the degree, I, I think, are almost lost on me. But um, <laughs> um, it's good. It's good to have that. It's good to have that four year degree. And it shows it shows to employers that you're willing to learn and, you, and you know, you can take on information. Despite how successful you were uh, on the court and, and obviously picking up that degree as well, no doubt the best thing to come out of your time in college was you met your wife, Nelly, uh, while you were there. How did you two meet? Was it at one uh-huh. of these famous Red Cup parties? <laughs> no, it was, uh, it's a funny story, actually. We, um, when, you, when I got to my freshman dorms, um, it's like set up like a big hallway. Like it's, it's, it's you know, both uh, guys and girls all in the same dorm. And so... I was on level two, and so was she. But what happened is that we just went to lunch. And we came back, and we saw like written on the names on our door it said like "Come to room two one seven. Yeah. Like, oh, all right. And we thought, um, you know, we thought oh, we, they must have seen us. Thought we were pretty hot stuff, and then you know, <laughs> put something on our door. So we went over there, and her and um, her other two roommates and a friend were, were all there. We we you know introduced ourselves. She caught my eye straight away. Obviously, there's yeah. no doubt about that. I was yeah. I was hook line sinker from the first moment. But um, she yeah. So we uh, you know made plans for that night. You know hung out for a little bit, and then when we left, we had noticed that on every single other male door, they'd written the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> we thought well, they saw us and they thought they picked us out, but they just put it on every single door that had a guy's name on it. Oh, that is brilliant. So, yeah. Did you go around and remove them all after that? Uh, we did think about that, but no, it was you know we're a good sport, so we we knew we didn't need to do that. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it worked out pretty well because as soon as you uh, graduated from college, you two were were pretty much married straight away and, and moved down to Australia. Yeah, it worked out really well. Every, everyone had just finished their finals, um, and uh, we had our wedding right after the finals. So it was, oh, our wedding was almost like a big blowout for, for everyone, <laughs> and um, it was. Uh, it was a great day. Like it, everything went flawlessly. Everyone had a ton of fun. You know, it went all day. 
um, it was yeah, it was everything you could hope for in a massive celebration. So yeah, and then um, we uh, we were married in uh, May and and came back to Australia in June. Was the plan always to move back to Australia, or was it sort of dependent on where you sort of signed and and where you ended up uh, playing your basketball? No, we spoke about it. The plan was always for me to come back and have a crack at the NBL. You know, it was always um, that was my dream since I was a little kid to come back and play basketball professionally. You know, and um, I, I got a taste of it before I left for college, training with the Brisbane Bullets at the time. And, you know, uh, I wasn't ready at that point in my career, so college was perfect. And then we we spoke about this one, you know, when we were making plans to, for our life, so to speak. And um, we said, yeah, look, I'm going to go over and see if I can get signed, give it everything I've got, and if if I don't end up getting signed, then have a little bit of a a holiday, so to speak, and then go yeah. back to America and, and start working. Well, it didn't take too long. The Wool- uh, sorry, the Illawarra Hawks offered you uh, a deal, and I think in 2011 uh, you went and signed in your f- for your first NBL season. And um, uh, 2009. 2009. <laughs> my apologies, got my uh, yeah. my maths right, the wrong mate. way around there, mate. Um, <laughs> I mean, at what point did you and Nelly start sort of discussing the fact that you you both wanted to have a family? Well, it's, it's interesting. We um, when I signed with the Hawks, you know, it was we had a, a great couple of years. Um, you know, I signed with the Hawks, played that season, went to the grand final, lost in the grand final, but it was an awesome experience. You know, got to know Matt Campbell, Glenn Savile, you know, those kind of legends of the game. Um, then, you know, we I went and played in Mackay for an off season, came back to Wollongong on another two year deal, and then in two thousand and eleven, I was playing the second season in Mackay. And we kind of decided then we'd had a pretty good two years of marriage together. We were having a lot of fun. It just felt like that was the right time. Yeah. So this is like this is like 2011, you know, around the, you know, I think it was around the May June um, period, where we were like, you know what, let's 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 you know, it seems like the right time. We both felt right about it, and you know, we started to to actively try and have a baby. You know how it goes with all the the timings and the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and each month, each month's checking the uh, checking the pregnancy stick, and then you know going again next month, timing everything, having the most you know planned and scheduled sex you've ever had in your life. So <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know you go through that process, um, and you know, but after after four, five, six, seven months, you start to think, well, what's going on here? What's uh, this isn't you know this this should be happening? You know, you start to get a bit worried. You you mentioned there that you know maybe the six seven month mark, you start getting worried you know most people's perception or expectation is you know not to not that all guys are you know oh it's only going to take me one time but most people would expect that it would happen quite quickly and um you know things that i've seen that the average can take up to 12 months even if there is uh, no underlying uh, medical issues or, or, or things of that nature did you have those expectations that it would happen quite quickly yeah well we you know we we thought straight away this was just us we were both happy both happy both healthy you know and we just didn't um, see any any you know, bumps in the road at the time. So um, when they started to come, and we did reach that you know twelve month period, <laughs> then we um, we decided all right, let's uh, let's seek some advice, let's go see some people, and then you know it's all about all about the testing from then on in. And um, that was a uh, that was a rough period of time. Um, it really like uh, on my wife in particular, um, she had to go through some tests some extremely painful tests um something called a hokosi where they check if your tubes are clear and through that test we found out that her, her tubes were were complete were almost completely blocked and um we 
for someone to go through a hypokosis with blocked tubes, if anyone knows, it's an extremely painful procedure if there's so much pressure and the tubes aren't letting the fluid through. So, and um, all up, she had about, I think she, I think she had about five of those. So it's not a not a pleasant experience at all. Um, and then, you know, then like when you do the other test, you try different things and. Um, we ended up going down the uh, IVF route because it just didn't look like um, we could get it done ourselves. Um, you say you went down the IVF route. You talk about all the tests and and all the, you know, the pain that your your wife and you were going through. Was there anyone you were you you were able to speak to at the time? I mean, was there a friend, a family member, anyone in the at the team um, that you were you felt comfortable enough sharing all this with? Yeah, at the time I had a. Um, I had a teammate, Dave Gruber, um, American guy, um, who eventually became a naturalized Australian. But um, he he was he went through similar things at the start. They didn't have to quite go through IVF, but you know, I uh, I spoke to him about it, and um, you know, just it was just a general chat at that time. It wasn't something we were trying to hide at that point or, or ashamed of, but it was just um, he he went through the same thing, and, and it's funny when you start to go through this stuff and you start to think about it more. You know, you start to see um, and you start to know and you start, you just become in that world that other people are going through the same thing. Yeah. You may not have seen it before that point, but as soon as you start going through it yourself, all these other people all of a sudden just come to the surface and it's like, oh, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah, me too. You know, we'd say, oh, I've got to go to these tests to see what's going on. And they go, oh, yeah, we had to do that as well. And you just find out that it's actually more common than you think. I mean, in your sort of journey to to have children and and to find out what's wrong, this is still obviously in the early stages. This is back in, you know, 2012, roughly around about then. Um, At this point, were you still kind of thinking, okay, we're going to go down the IVF route, everything's going to be sweet? Um, Or did you you start to have a lot of fear whether whether it was going to work or not? No, when it, I kind of naively, I suppose, when we first when we did our first round, you know, you go through the uh, the egg retrieval, which is just, which isn't a great experience for the woman. Again, I've just my wife's gone through things that I wouldn't wish on anyone, unfortunately. Mm. But you know, like in doing injections to her every night, having to to inject her, getting it so wrong that she said, "Just let me do it myself." <laughs> um, and then. Um, yeah, so we did our ended up our first round in 2013. And when we did our first fresh, they call it a fresh round because they do it straight off um, when you collect the eggs, and then they put the rest that were away in, in you know, obviously in the freezer. Yep. So in that period, I I literally thought that this was this was it. This was our time. This IVF it's science. It works. You know what I mean? And and I, I remember being in the uh, the theater when she was going through implantation and everything. That the, the couple next to us. Um, was saying that this this was their fourth attempt and they'd failed three ones already. Yeah. So it was like, um, man, I can't even imagine. You know, at the time, I'm like, that's got to be hell. Yeah. And that like, and then just obviously, you know, our first round didn't fail. We ended up collecting um, uh, eight eggs in total, made it to the stage where you can freeze. Yep. So that that's actually quite a big. Uh, a big number, which is great. You know, we got a lot of good embryos, which is which is obviously awesome. So then from there, we went to um, uh, like we ended up doing three rounds that all failed. You know, so we did the fresh round, and and the first time you're so excited, you know, you're uh you you're just keen as mustard, ready for that phone call, and you know with the blood tests and everything. Not to yeah, forgot to mention she has to do a of blood test every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um. Uh, then when you get that call and the first one, 
didn't work it was like it's like a shotgun to the chest yeah you know it's just um you just have all your expectations thinking you know this is doctors this is science this is nurses it's scientists you know you're seeing these embryos on a big screen you're like man this is some high-tech stuff you know yeah and uh and then when they the nurse calls you and said sorry this this one didn't take it the first one probably was the was one of the hardest ones yeah and um we just we just i remember being in the in our little dining room on the phone and just breaking down yeah. absolutely tears from me and my wife it was just it was just like i just didn't expect it to hit me that hard yeah i mean again one of the reasons i do this podcast and i've mentioned it before is to sort of um you know, for every person to tell their own story and to know that every story is different and how you feel is is fine. Um, how do you feel about those those two or three first rounds that didn't work out? Now, do you see them as your children, or do you just think it was a, an embryo, an egg that didn't take, and it it wasn't uh, you know a formed baby? Uh, I don't know. What's what is your feelings towards that? I guess me myself, I didn't I didn't think of it as a child just yet um later on when when one's got a little closer i did but um these first three just seemed like i don't know almost like a, a shot in the dark so to speak it's just they didn't have you know form or you know didn't have a heartbeat or anything like that. it was just you know it, you don't really think about it as you're losing your kids it's just kind of something that you tried and you failed yeah you know and um it, that's that was my approach to it. I know there's other people that might have a different approach. They might see him as definitely their kids. Yeah. Um, and you know that's that's fine. Everyone grieves in their own way. But um, for me, it was just something yeah, like that we tried and it failed. And and the failure was just just kept getting hit. And like we we did the first one, that was like a ton of bricks. The second one was almost like a numb thing where I just went silent for a long time and I was yeah. just I was not like. You know, I was silent at practice. I was walking around, you know, moping and all that. And then when the third one hit, I was, we, we were kind of like, what's, like, do we need to, what do we do here? This is, yep. you know, this is insane. You mentioned there the so basketball, sorry, yeah. you mentioned there the basketball. And, um, you know, yeah. I've spoken to a, a, a former AFL player previously, and he said, you know, no one at the football club knew. I hid it from everyone. And, you know, players would take the piss out of me because i'd leave training straight away was everyone at training and at the club fully aware was what was happening and and how did it affect your basketball no i um i didn't um uh i didn't publicly like i didn't go out publicly or anything i had a few guys on the team that knew what was going on um but it's hard for for guys to um you know, it's hard for anyone to try and console. It's like, what do you say in those moments? You know, it's just all you can really do is say, "Hey, if you need anything, I'm, you know, I'm here for you." And um, like, I didn't really make it too public or anything like that. And but one other thing I will say, the Hawks have always been, you know, pretty, uh, especially the coaching staff that I've had with Gordon McLeod and then and Rob Beveridge have always been 100% in my corner. You know, everything, anything I needed to do, uh, they just said, "Go do it." You need to look after your family, no matter what it was. If it was a game, if it was a practice, didn't matter. Yeah, they always just said you got to do what you got to do because we know you're a hard worker. We know you're not someone that you know we need to worry about. And so they just said whatever you need to do, you do. Did so the, that that helped. Did the game uh, mean a little bit less to you at that point? The game no, of basketball. Kind of, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I uh, I saw it as a bit of an escape. You know, I've always been able to. Um, basketball's always been an escape for me for things that are going on. You know, I've always relied on basketball to you know clear my mind and. Um, I actually, I really, I loved going to, to, I, I didn't really like leaving now and I didn't like, 
you know, everything leading up to practice. But when practice started, it was good because I just it was able to take my mind off of things. So, you know, I, I love basketball for so many different reasons, but that's definitely one of them. After three unsuccessful attempts, um, you and your wife decided maybe that it was time to take a break from the IVF and and maybe just in, enjoy a bit of time together. Um, after you yeah, decided we, to do yeah. that, you, ha- you had a bit of good news. Yeah, like we, we just said in, in about 2015, you know, let's because you know how it like like I was saying before, everything's so scheduled. You, yeah, it's straining on the marriage, and you, you know, you, you it's just failure after failure, and then timed, and you know, you start to lose some of the passion in, in your in your um in your marriage. So we said we need to take some time for us. You know, I mean, we need to um you know spend some time together. So we ended up in one of those off seasons having a holiday together and getting away, and and then just just like saying, look, we've got those ones, the embryos in the fridge. If we're ready to try again. You know, so let's just, let's just hold off, you know, let's just, um, you know, let's just not do this for a while. Let's not concentrate on, on this and just concentrate on us. And it was a good period of time, uh, with her, you know, but the whole time funny during that period, you, you just feel like you, you're trying to fill a hole yeah. with other things. Yeah. So I remember like we used to go to down to Sydney to go to the DFO there and just buy stuff. And you, you look back at it now and you're just like, we were just we were just trying to fill a hole that with, with the material things that we needed, you know what I mean? And it was just, um, it was a good period of time though for us because there's no pressure and we got back to our marriage and, and it was a good season that year as well. Um, that was when uh, Bevo, Bevo came on board and it was a good first season. I met a lot of good guys. So, um, but then, you know, we were, we found out in uh, December 2015 that, um, that we had fallen pregnant naturally. How did, how did you find and, out and, uh, and how did your wife tell you? Well, we were still, you know, we, we weren't 100% planning everything. We were yeah. just letting things happen. Um, and then uh, I came home one day from practice and um, and she'd had, I mean, we knew that it was around that time. You mm. know, you always have something in the back of your mind around that time. And um, she had had a pregnancy test and she ran up to me at the door and said that, you know, like, obviously, you're not going to believe this. But And then we waited another five days and did another one. It was another positive and we just... It was the best. It was uh, that period of time for for that for that time was just crazy. That I think that was on about December. It was around Christmas time. It was just after Christmas, and um, and it was the best Christmas present ever. Yeah. And um, but like during that period of time, we were going to baby shops. You know, we weren't even like what five six six weeks pregnant. And, like we yeah. hadn't even gone to see the doctor yet or anything. Yeah. Um. And like we're just on cloud nine buying all sorts of stuff, you know, baby things. And, yeah. Um, but then um, I was uh, I was on a road trip in Melbourne, and when I left um, the night that I got to Melbourne, um, Nell said she wasn't feeling great. She was starting to get some pains in um in a you know in a uterus area, yeah. and um, uh, she said, "Oh, look, it's probably just you know." We obviously you Google the crap out of everything, and yeah. they said, "Oh, it's just the baby, you know, latching on and, and all that." And so, like, oh, okay, you're going to have cramps because you know that's just the way it goes. And um, so I was like, right. but then the next day, that that pain, I was remember I was in, um, I was headed into video in the morning, and Elle said something's seriously wrong here, and um, and oh, she's in a, a ton of pain. So I told her to just go straight to the hospital. Um, she went to Wollongong pro, uh, Public. Um, she was like demanding an ultrasound because she was in intense pain and, um, they, they weren't giving it to her 
for some reason and I ended up we ended up calling our doctor, our IVF doctor at the time, his name's Dr. Greening. And um he said, Don't let them touch you. I'm just gonna put you in an ambulance and bring you over to my private hospital or the private hospital he worked out of. And um he uh did that and obviously I'm I'm in um I don't know I don't know what's going on. I'm I'm trying to focus. I've got a game that night. I'm at um I'm at, I get to shoot around and I speak to her before shoot around and she's being wheeled into operating theater and they have to do emergency surgery on her and like because they found out that the pregnancy had become ectopic and it had gone on a little too long and she started to bleed uh, internally what was so going, she got off what was going uh, through your uh, mind at, at that point in time well I, I when i last spoke to her before i went out and before i just finished shoot around i remember and i i called her straight away um and she just said, like, that she was, like, being rushed in and that she's in a lot of pain and that they said that they need to operate straight away. And I just, I remember just, I just broke down. I, I spoke to Bevo and he, he he was, like, kind of put me off to the side and said, you know, you got to go. You, you have to go. We'll get you on a flight. you just got to go. You know, and I said, yeah, I was like, yeah, i got to go. <laughs> because obviously he knew before I did, you know. Yeah. And, um. I just, uh, I just, you know, ended up getting outside or the, one of the, the guys were waiting outside at the time and I came out and I couldn't hold it anymore. I just broke down in front of all of them and just lost it. Um, cause I didn't know if I was gonna, if I was gonna see my wife again. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an intense feeling and, um, uh, I know the guys there were super supportive. Um, yeah, um the assistant coach, you know, drove me to the airport. Um, Flinny, the head coach at the time, and just you know, said all the best. And I flying back was just a, a nightmare. I didn't know because obviously you can't, you're not on your phone at all the whole yeah. time. Yeah. And you go and you land and you try and call and you can't call obviously because obviously she's still in surgery. And then um, I know one of her friends was uh, was heading over to the hospital to to see what's going on, and she said, "Look, I'll call you when something happens." And um, and when I got to the hospital, she had just gotten out of surgery and she just, um, she actually, she had just woken up. Mm. So I, her friend was there, thankfully. And, um, she just, obviously we lost the, the pregnancy and she had to have one of her uh, tubes removed. Um, the, the tube that they actually had the ectopic pregnancy. Uh, how do you feel about the fact that maybe, I mean, it's a, it's not a the, maybe not going to come out the right way, but you, you weren't there for all of that to be there to support her. Does that really even now play on your mind? It's the hardest part. It's the hardest part knowing that you know she had to go through all that stuff by herself. You know, I mean, she she didn't have time to to get a friend. It was during you know work hours and well, her friends the, the the friends that she would call straight away were at work, and um, one of them rushed over as soon as she found out, but. Um, you know, it was, it, it's hard just not being able to be there. You just, you just, it's like that feeling of of helplessness where you just can't do anything. Yeah. You know, I, I literally cannot do anything right now except for get on this plane and that's it. We, you know? we spoke about the, the three un, unsuccessful attempts of IVF and, and how you sort of felt in your opinion and, and the way you feel that they weren't your children. How does this one feel different? Uh, it, it was a, it was definitely different. We actually called it. We called it apple seed. That's what we still call it. We have a little um, tree at our house that we call apple seed, and um, it was because it was our making. 
I don't know, and and, and the, the feeling that it gave us, it wasn't like, it wasn't like let's hope this works kind of feeling. It was, you know, this is the natural way. This is how it's done. We made this baby just us, you know, and it was um, it it didn't feel like we were we were something that we had tried and failed. It felt like something that was supposed to happen and failed, you know, and um, it was just it was a lot different. Even though they were probably around the same, you know age the the embryos and, and apple seed but it felt it just felt a hundred percent different because we had made it together you mentioned um she originally went to one hospital and then wasn't receiving the treatment that that maybe she needed was there much anger involved um from you or, or your wife and and did you take any steps did you write to the hospital or, or anything like that i called them um like a you know, like an enraged dad would, yeah. or not a dad at the time, but an enraged husband would. And, um, you know, I just, they, they, all they could do was just tell me that she'd been sent to, to a private hospital now. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I felt like if it wasn't for, you know, that our doctor, um, she could very well have lost her life. So that's what he said to me. That was his words, not mine. Yeah. You know, see, if, I didn't, if I didn't take action, there was a chance with the internal bleeding that she might have, you know, not lost her life so that's an intense moment i know for me certainly when i um my my daughter passed away prematurely i went back to training maybe like five or six days later i mean i was in a foreign country with nothing else to do i was like yep i'll go back and it probably didn't hit me for a little bit of time after that my wife came back to australia for a period of time and i was overseas by myself where it really sort of sunk in how much time did you give yourself to before you sort of went straight back into it well, when I was in the hospital room with her when the boys were playing, and we watched the game in the hospital, and um, uh, she was um, she was discharged um, uh, the next day, I believe. And um, uh, when they came back, yeah, obviously you get the the travel day back and then a day off. Um, and then yeah, Bevo said to me and said, "Look, how you doing? Do you um, do you need some time?" And I remember thinking to myself, like I. You know, Nelly's doing okay. Um, she's up and about a little bit. You know, she's she's a, one of the toughest people that I've ever met. Like she's she, uh, she just um, if the, the hospital says you're going to be there for five days, she's like, no, I won't. I'll be here for two, <laughs> and I'll just go. <laughs> that must go well down for um, you in the household when you try to tell us something oh, to do. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> just get out of the way sometimes. Yes, <laughs> um, but no, look, she um, she obviously was out of the hospital the next day and. Like with you know wounds around her abdomen was I remember when I did she said no I'll, I'll be fine you go to practice you know get I know she knew that practice was like a relief for me yeah and um uh, I I remember coming home and she's on her hands and knees scrubbing the floor I'm like, <laughs> doing <laughs> <laughs> and um you know so she's yeah so tough as nails tougher than I'll ever be so um it was uh it, it was good to get back to basketball and because you know like i said during the practice it kind of took my mind away from it you know and um that was uh it was good that she was good that she knew i needed that and, and i needed that too thanks for listening to part one of my chat with tim conrad in part two tim talks about the alternative options available to he and his wife to become parents he also talks about his experience with the foster care system which brings him so much happiness yet so much hurt Don't miss out on part two. Make sure you subscribe to Life, Death and Sport. Thanks for listening to Life, Death and Sport. 
Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss upcoming interviews and connect with Robbie Cornthwaite on social media. Links are in the show notes.